Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 317, is recorded live February 2nd, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Dern Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I've caught whatever this nasty thing is that's going around. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, enjoying Groundhog Day. Oh, did he did he see a shadow? I, I saw a post earlier that they didn't like his forecast, so some fox or something ate him. Oh, I, I like that idea. Yeah, if it works. You know, a little uh, Darwinism and evolution going on, then we'll only end up with versions that would uh, always say it's going to be a short, short winter. Well, I did look that up, and they say that little guy is only right twenty eight percent of the time. <laughs> so, I mean, I could flip a coin and do equally as well. No, yeah, I think you'd do better flipping a coin fifty fifty in that way. <laughs> <laughs> and and also joining us this week, that voice you hear was Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing excellent, Darren. I would ask how you're doing, but I can already tell you're downright miserable there, my friend. Yeah, you can you can hear. But the only good thing about this is you end up with that deep radio voice, which I am going to let Mac and Kevin do most of the talking. Otherwise, I'm going to hack all over this, and your car speakers will be blasting me, making all sorts of noise, or I'll have a four or five hours of editing, which I don't think I'm up to either. So this, I'm not sure if this one will go up... Uh, Thursday night, Friday morning, or it might be a Saturday timeline, but uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. The chat room is actually working tonight. Of course, we said that last week, and then it failed on us shortly after that, but we have Eric and S. Nelson and some others have stopped in, so thanks once again. Also, I'd like to remind everybody, if you're enjoying the show, why don't you go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click over to Patreon and give us at least a dollar. Three dollars gets you advanced early notice for the show notes and upcoming guests, which we will have some coming up. I don't know when we'll actually give official names. I'll, you know, Kevin, do you have any idea when you want to start promoting them? Hello, I kind of lost you there. Are you there? I was just asking if you hadn't. I mentioned that we would be having some guests coming up. I didn't know when we want to start promoting them. Yeah, well, uh, we got uh, Yika Hanikova is going to be on February 16th show. Um, she's a uh, oh Women's Hall of Fame diver, uh, rebreather diver. She's involved with uh, little, uh, a shipwreck hunting outfit out of Milwaukee. She runs a charter business as well out of Milwaukee. Um, phenomenal yeah. diver, dove all kinds of wrecks uh, worldwide. Um, and we also have uh, Craig Rich. Uh, co-chair of Michigan Shipwreck Rich Association. He's going to be on, I believe, uh, March 16th. Yes. Yes. Um, I have a few more in the pipeline. I will uh, haven't got confirmations on dates, but as I do, I'll be sure to share them. 
Very good. Sounds like a very, very nice lineup, and I'm looking forward to listening to all of them. And then we also have the dive show season is getting ready to kick off. What's our first show? Well, our first show is going to be this month. It's going to be the 25th, or at least for me, at uh, Our World Underwater in Chicago at the Rosemont Center. And I will be there Saturday, probably from around 11 to 2, hopefully, to meet some people who said they're going to be there and want to see us. Excellent. Yeah, along with Our World Underwater, we're also, we have, uh, I think three of them are like almost back to back to back. Um, haven't got the dates in front of me, but uh, I know that uh, Ghost Ships, in Milwaukee, it's coming up. Is coming up, and then um, the uh, Ford Seahorses in Ann Arbor put on Shipwreck Festival. Uh, all three of those are consecutive weekends. Then I think we have one week off, and uh, Michigan Shipwreck Rich Association has their Mysteries and History show on the following. Um, I believe that's March 25th, plus or minus. Uh, check the, check the websites and uh, take a look at these. Um, if you're a diver in the area. You know, this is kind of the way you, you get, in my opinion, so I'll get my season started here. Just, you know, you get to see all the, all the new finds and, you know, they have all kinds of information on, on, on new tech coming up and new toys and gadgets and, um, you know, this is like, you know, Christmas season for divers right now. So get it in gear, guys. Let's do it. Yeah, that first show uh, in March is going to be the 4th and then Go Ships is the 11th and the MSRA is the 25th. So... The weekends for March are pretty much booked. Yeah. Very good. Well, looking at our topics, we have a couple here. Um, what I'd like to do, Kevin's obliging, I'll take uh, the first one. You can take the second one on that New Zealand ghost fishing, and then uh, I'll take the third. If you take the fourth, I'll take the last. How's that sound? Sounds like a plan. Let's get it rolling. Okay, the first thing we're going to talk about, we talked about it last week. Uh, so we have some further information on the wrecks off of Queensland, Australia, that we talked about last week. They're all in less than 40 feet of water on a shallow reef 300 miles offshore. That's, that gets you 300 miles offshore, shallow. Uh, that's, a and, long, that's a long haul for a dive. Oh, yeah. They were talking about the wrecks estimated to be at least 150 years old were discovered during a week-long expedition to Keenan Reefs, and they said that's 520 kilometers northeast of Bangalberg, B-U-N-D-A-G-A-B-E-R-G. And it was a curator of the Maritime Museum, at Maritime Archaeology at the Sydney, Australia National Maritime Museum, and he was one of 11 people who took part in the expedition. And the way they had some of their comments was, to look down at the seabed and see an anchor sitting there and to see something someone hasn't seen probably since the wreck occurred is magic. It's an amazing thing. And I think most of us who've been on wrecks that we have noticed, you know, have been found, it's still quite thrilling. He said the reefs are a 42-square-kilometer string of submerged coral atolls located about halfway between Queensland coast and New Caledonia said the reefs were notorious around the 19th century, said a previous expedition undertaken by the museum in uh, 1987 found nine other wrecks in the same area. said a map that was printed in 1859 even describes the southern end of the reef as being strewn with wrecks. Uh, to me, that would be a clue to go back out and look with a side scan. It said uh, during the 19th century, the reefs weren't very well charted, 
people went out sailing, dependent upon the conditions, they would wind up running aground. In some instances, sailors never even saw them before it was too late. They said most of the shipwrecks found along the reef are from 19th century trading vessels on their way north to Jakarta and then as far away as England. Uh, I, I can't imagine the uh, fun that would be to find, you know, one, much less eight or nine. The expedition also attempted to find the brig Bona Vesta, which was wrecked while traveling from Sydney to, well, traveling to Sydney in 1828, but were unsuccessful. That would make that almost, well, almost 200 years. Uh, some of the pictures they are showing here, and this either is on the reef or at high tide, or low tide, is there's four people standing by this anchor, and the anchor dwarfs the people. Fantastic shot. Yeah, this is a huge anchor. I mean, I don't know if we have something going on with perspective here, but, uh, you know, I would say if, unless this is a, a goofy perspective shot, uh, the tang on that anchor is, what would you say, Mac, at least 10 feet long. I mean, twice I'm, long. Absolutely, at least 10 feet. The the flukes on it look to be um, easily eight feet eight feet broad. Um, tang, you know, this 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 is a massive anchor here. I can't imagine the size of the vessel that would have required that kind of anchor. Yeah, because when you're looking at, at that that type of anchor, that this is you know clearly a 19th century style anchor here, early 19th century style anchor, and those vessels were made of wood, and you just didn't have wooden ships big enough to use that kind of anchor, but um, I guess that they weren't taking any chances when, when they built this anchor. It probably was pretty oversized for the boat. Um, it, it doesn't appear to be a crossbar anchor with uh, the wooden. It appears to be a metal crossbar, and it looks like that crossbar has slid. You see how it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see that there. Uh, do I have a link in the chat room yet here? Sorry, guys. I'm going to uh, copy a Something in the chat for you guys. My multitask is not quite to speed here, folks. Yeah. Oh, what? Looks like what? looks like Darren did. Oh, did Darren put it in there? Oh, it is in there already. Okay, we're good. There it is. Okay, but they were saying the the Doctor Hunter, who's one of the head honchos in this, said the data retrieved from the expedition will provide more information about Australia's pre-Federation trade with other colonies, and it said trade between Australia and India, for example, was critical to Australia's commercial interest. So determining the identity of the three unknown wrecks will involve a careful comparison of the archaeology or archaeological uh, discoveries with historic records. Said so most of them are wrecked around the same time, and because of the articles they were carrying, the anchors and other things are very similar. We're going to have to have a really close look at what the objects we're finding are and compare them with the site and then do a very, very close analysis. Uh, it's possible you could even have a wreck upon a wreck which would really make identifying which one you saw extremely difficult. Yeah, and we do see that sometimes because areas which are prone to wrecks are prone to wrecks and possibly will have them. You get up to uh, South Manitou Island and you've got the Francisco Morazon and the Walter Frost pretty much on top of each other. And I don't believe that the Morazon actually skittered over the frost on its way to wrecking. Yeah, the other critical item about this is they were not using side scans. They were using magnetometers. Their reference, the wrecks were discovered using equipment which detects changes in the Earth's magnetic fields caused by large metallic objects underwater, such as cannons and anchors. So magnetometer is the way to go. Uh, they're well, saying the total cost of the expedition 
ranges between $150,000 and $200,000 and was funded by the Silent World Foundation. Said under the Commonwealth Historic Shipwrecks Acts, relics or parts of a wreck more than 75 years old cannot be removed or disturbed unless a permit has been obtained. Said the cost of the expedition and the exclusion zones around these uh, wrecks is well worth the historical benefits. If people unaware of the significance of these sites come through and start moving things around or removing objects, it lessens the significance from an archaeological perspective. And the last part, he said, public awareness that we generate around maritime history and archaeology is well beyond the financial cost of the project. Well, being 300 miles offshore, I doubt they're going to have too many interlopers out there um, interfering with the research and moving around these pieces here. Um, now, you might have some treasure hunters come out there because that's, of course, serious business. But as far as you know, just people casually hunting for artifacts, that's a long way to go. That's a lot of gas. <laughs> so, well, it's, it's also past your 10-mile normal limit for what you claim is your waters. And if you're 300 miles offshore, I am hard to be, it's hard-pressed for me to understand how they can claim that, you know, under the historic acts, if it's 300 miles offshore. Yeah, I mean, it's not just international waters out there. And if that's the case, then um, how can they legislate that? Or enforce I mean, it anyway. Yeah, I mean, unless it's some kind of unless it's it's a war grave. I mean, if if, if there's some uh, you know uh, military vessels out here, those of course are protected no matter where they are. But you know, what the, they're talking about these merchant vessels, uh, you know, good luck with that. Uh, well, if he's a pirate now, that's not a war vessel, is it? Pirate ship? No, no. A a privateer might be considered a war vessel, but a pirate ship <laughs> answers to nobody. So well, that's what I'm saying. So the cannon I ever found, I must have been from a pirate ship. Can't be a war. Right? Well, well, no. They, they they would have cannons on merchant vessels. I mean, you had to protect yourself from the from the pirates. So um, cannons can be everywhere. But you know, back to what you mentioned them using the uh, magnetometers versus the uh, side scan. Um, from my limited understanding of saltwater shipwreck hunting, especially in the shallow, more shallow areas, sounds like with the uh, all the barnacle growth and the and the coral growth, uh, it's actually more of a challenge using the uh, the side scan because you have a, you have an awful lot of structure on the bottom, which makes it a, a real challenge. You know, the side scan depends upon the, the nice big flat areas we have here in our Great Lakes basins. So they are kind of more restricted to the, the magnetometers, which have a much much more narrower field to, to search. So, all right. Well, I, was look, I was looking at the next article. Now this is a little awkward one here. Uh, we're going to be talking about a link to a New Zealand ghost fishing Wellington Harbor cleanup that was just done, 2017. So that's got to be recent. Ghost fishing ground worldwide organized events like this to clear rubbish in harbors and estuaries. Uh, this year, four truckloads of rubbish were removed in one morning. That's a heck of a lot. They said among the items found was a bottle of whiskey containing a snake and a scorpion. And... Uh, this is the kind of site you need to take. Uh, we have this already available for them because looking at the pictures, that's that thousand words you want to listen to or look at. I'm looking at the one. It's a picture of uh, the bottle containing the snake and the scorpion. It's one I'd like to have the bottle without the creators inside. Uh, the title of this one here was Great Snakes Unexpected Find During Wellington Harbor Spring Spring Cleanup. Uh, looking at some of the other items, 
They said 41 truck tires were expected, but the wine bottle containing a snake and scorpion was a surprise. Divers hauled 8,000 liters of junk from the bottom of Wellington Harbor as part of the annual spring cleanup. Uh, one of the pictures I'm looking at as when we had ours uh, last October, we brought up car tires. Well, these truck tires are a bit larger than that, and they obviously needed a crane to pick these up because there's several dozen of them strung together here they are hauling to put in the dumpster. Uh, he said there was over 30 divers taking part and a similar number of helpers on land, and that's one of the items we can vouch for. You can't have an ecology dive if you don't have shore support, and one-to-one is the least you want to have because it's really hard for a diver to bring something all the way from out into the water onto the shore and up on the banks. Uh, having shore support, you can't do it without without the people. Yeah, and that's what this is showing. Yeah, if, if you're doing it as a boat dive, it's nine near impossible to uh, do an ecology dive without some, some substantial shore support or boat support. There's just no way a diver can get that material back out of the water uh, the, the, unless you end up making countless trips back and forth with little things. It just doesn't work very well. And the items that we found, just what they found. Uh, and that also was a decent stash of tires, bicycles, which we always find. And I'm looking at their list of railroad cones, and they have the real tall ones. Somebody must have been really nuts out there because some of those are really usable again. Uh, and cell phones. Again, cell phones. I wish I had the pictures. Some other people I know have got some cell phones this year. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how they end up in the water, but that seems to be a popular place for them. <laughs> so. And I'm looking at the picture here. It said the team from the ministry uh, for primary industries we're all over this because I was, you know, they're both definitely not something you're allowed to bring up into New Zealand. So they're quite, quite, quite concerned how it got there in the first place. Uh, they said those taking part in the 70 minute dive operation, uh, they listed a, a group of the people who were there. And I'm looking at the uh, pictorial of the guys and it looks like cold water and they're all wearing dry suits. Yeah, I've been having a hard time getting this this article to load, unfortunately. So I'm just still I'm just catching up with you right now. Okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah. They said this uh, the Saturday's operation was the group sixth, and the cleanup would continue annually because there's still an estimated close to 100 truck tires left to be removed from the harbor. He said, meanwhile, 60 volunteers braved the bad weather on Sunday to clean up the coastline at the bay. Uh, he said he was impressed with the turnout, given that the rain. And the weather was not conducive to a summer day at the beach. And they said uh, the group managed to clear away almost 3,000 liters of rubbish between the bay and the island bay. Said everybody was soaked to the skin, but everybody had a smile on their face. And you can see them grinning here. They definitely had a good time. And I'm noticing some of these guys were in bailouts. So I'm, it doesn't really say how deep they were. But the bottle with the scorpion and the snake, that's impressive. Well, you know, bailouts are always a good idea. And, you know, I'm sure they have, a, say, this is, they got some current in this area. Um, if with that amount of stuff down there, there's probably some entanglement issues and who knows what's all down there. I mean, um, bailouts are always a good idea. Yeah, I'm looking at the, the second set. We had two uh, places to go look at pictures. And I'm looking at the second set. And some of these guys are set up for commercial work. I'm seeing DPVs with sharks um, outlines on them. Uh, we have kayakers out there. Uh, 
you really need to go to the site and take a look at some of this stuff. And I'm assuming this is salt water. And I am noticing that they, they do have a lack of growth on the cones and tires and stuff, unlike what we had. And they are using a crane to pick up a lot of the, the heavy materials like the tires. So hats off to them. Look, they did a great job. And that was 2017, so this was quite recent here, too. Yeah, I said, uh, well, 12 days ago, so that's got to be in January. Yeah, uh, well, up, updated 12 days ago, so yeah, quite recently. Well, it's not winter there, because I'm looking at the pictures, and you're running around in shirts, shirt sleeves, and shorts, except the divers. Mm-hmm. And some of the pictures of the dive gear and the harnesses and weight belts are wearing. I just wonder if there is a current down there. Well, if nothing else, with all those tires and the amount of stuff they have, there has to be substantial entanglement going on. I mean, this is not just your typical, you know, perusing through the bay here. This has been obviously been a dump area for a long time. And it's a shipping area for sure. But this goes along with what we just finished talking about. This one here is yeah. uh, from U.S. Today. And it says, hey, uh, Detroit, hey, Mac, I, money? Mac I, I can help on this one here. Oh, go so. for it. Yeah, I was having a little bit of a hard time keeping up because my computer was just, I was having a hard time changing the screens here real quickly. But um, I'm using a different machine tonight, which is not getting uh, green lights from me here. Okay. Okay, yeah, this is from the uh, Detroit Free Press here. And no, excuse me, USA Today has this one here. Um, Okay, Detroit, below the murky rolling currents of Detroit River is a floor loaded, loaded with centuries of artifacts, war cannons, old wooden ships, cars, and hundreds of firearms, ranging from wooden muskets to automatic handguns. Visibility is so poor that scuba divers make many of these discoveries while running their hands along the, the river bottom. We, we call that mucking here, by the way. City ordinance forbids the public from diving in the rivers within Detroit city limits, partly because of safety concerns and partly because there's so much criminal evidence down there, said Sergeant Dean Rademacher with the Detroit Police Force Underwater Recovery Team. Come on. For as long as the city has been around, people have been throwing stuff into the river, in the water, he said. Detroit was founded in 1701. Police have recovered hundreds of guns, including 11 at one time, in the span of one archway off the MacArthur Bridge connecting Belle Isle to the mainland. In the police dive headquarters, there's a mounted M1 carbine from sometime between World War II and the 1960s. On the same wall is a propeller from a sunken Prohibition-era rum runner found near the bridge. Historic anchor pulled from Detroit for 60 years. Numerous cars, including a DeLorean in the 1980s, and more recently a Jeep Cherokee and a Nissan Xterra have been removed from the water. In 2009, a police diver was searching near a Jeep when he found a bronze statue stolen from the Ghost Point War Memorial. Rademacher said that if the river were ever somehow drained above Detroit, people would just be amazed at the things that appear. Underwater visibility ranges from around 8 feet on a good day to not being able to see your hand in front of your face. At the surface, the river moves at about 5 knots, 5.75 miles per hour. In November, a 6,000-pound anchor from a massive historic steamship was pulled from the Detroit River after 60 years underwater near the Ambassador Bridge. Greater Detroit was a 536-long, 96-foot-wide luxury steamship with a capacity of more than 2,100 passengers that toured the Great Lakes from 1924 to 1950. 
This artifact's location was no secret, but experts believe many historically significant discoveries remain hidden in the sediment clouded water a short distance from Detroit's shore. Six 1700s-era cannons have been pulled from the river from 1980s to 2011. The most recent one was more than six feet long, weighed about 1,300 pounds, and was found near Cobo Center. They're probably connected to a pre-war of 1812 inventory kept by the British military, said Dan Harrison, a library at Henry Ford College and doctoral student at Wayne State University. He suspects three additional cannons are somewhere in the river near the same area. I've told them to keep looking because we aren't necessarily done yet, he said. The cannons will be made the cannons will be made to fire four pound cannonballs, the same size as the six recovered cannons. The historic British inventory document shows seventeen total cannons of this type and fourteen have been accounted for. Harris said his theory is that the British dumped the cannons on the river because they were they were too worn out or too small to do the job. And four pound cannons aren't a very big cannon. They probably hauled the cannons they probably hauled the cannons onto the ice when the river was frozen over, perhaps in January or early February seventeen ninety six, Harrison said. This resulted in them in them dropping into the river and potentially out of enemy hands when the ice thawed. The artifacts are down there down there are so well preserved in fresh water that some of the stuff is would be instantly recognizable, Harrison said. Despite invasive zebra mussels spreading to cover many of the artifacts, Rademacher said even very old items remain discernible in the water, which doesn't corrode like the salty ocean water. The river ranges from about 18 to 52 feet deep, and police say the area where the search are frequently between 20 and 35 feet deep. The river is 28 miles long, and the Detroit shoreline comprises roughly 10 miles of it. Which means there is 18 miles left for the rest of us. <laughs> well, I want to comment on a couple of items here, though, um, in the article. Uh, they say it's illegal to die of the Detroit River, um, but from what I understand, I'm not encouraging folks to do this, um, it's only enforced if you dive it from the shore. Um, probably not a real appealing place to dive, given the history of the area, just because... Uh, you know, there was a time when the Detroit River used to catch on fire. There was so much junk in it and, and you know, stuff from the uh, the plants. And you know. But if you wanted to dive it, um, I've heard plenty of people diving it from boats who were, who were not hassled. So it um, doesn't appeal to me, though. It doesn't appeal to you? Because, uh, well, you know, when you're doing this, you know, you're stirring up the bottom quite a bit. Now, I know a lot has been done to clean the Detroit River up. And note the picture which shows them pulling the Jeep Cherokee has a whole cluster of fishermen right behind it. So yeah. it looks like the St. Clair Pier when they're fishing there and we're diving it. Yeah. So I, I don't know if they're fishing and eating the fish out of there or not, but uh, I don't know. Um, I could be wrong. It just doesn't. I mean, I was raised the time hearing the stories about how, how dirty that area was. And I'd be a little bit literary myself about, you know, mucking and turning up that bottom and seeing how much, you know, what's going to get on you from, from doing that. So That's probably partially true. That's why a full face and a dry suit would be a good idea. I thought the other item here they put down as why they forbid it is because of safety. Well, I can see the safety concern from the aspect of entry and exit, especially with boat traffic. But St. Clair is the same way. 
because you have the big boats there. But the comment about there's so much criminal evidence down there, that's a reason you can't dive it. Can't believe that because if that were true, the, I would expect the police to be out there every day getting that criminal evidence off the bottom. You got it. Exactly. The second yeah. item that's more significant for me and my safety is the current. The surface current, they said, can be at five knots. Well, one knot's about all you're going to swim against if you're out there playing. Mm-hmm. At, you're going to have to go down heavy, and five knots is nothing to play with. Yeah. Well, there's a uh, no, there's a, a a popular book you see still around. It's um, published back in the mid '80s. It's the uh, Diver's Guide to Michigan. It is a uh, green soft cover book. Looks kind of like an overgrown workbook, but you do still see it in dive shops here from place to here, place to place. And I remember reading the chapter on the Detroit River, and they were talking about uh, you know being an intermediate dive, places where you've got freighters right overhead and five mile an hour current that you're talking about, and it sounds really challenging to me to dive. Oh, it sounds like Eric is familiar with the book. Um, Eric Ball is posting in the chat that he's that he's he looked at the book. Um, his words are a great book. Um, a lot of entertaining stuff in there. It does tell you where a lot of the, the wrecks and things are in the Detroit River. Um, but just personally, I don't know that that much current, that poor visibility, the uh, potential for pollution. It just doesn't really appeal to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, um, although um, the grubbing over there. Uh, you know, I don't want to. I'm not going to give away all the guys' secrets, but uh, the grubbing over there, if you know where to do it, can be incredible. Can and, be unbelievable. And we've got some pictures on the club, you know, website that has a couple of pictures of some of the items you can find out of the river in that area. I'm mm-hmm. sure they were not taken in that 10 mile stretch that they prefer us not to be diving. Yeah. Well, I know when when. Uh, you know, Schultz and I were diving the Eber Ward last fall. Well, last summer we were posting on Facebook about it, and we had a guy posting about finding, um, you know, China uh, serving ware from the Eber Ward in in the Detroit River. This was a a side wheeler Eber Ward though, because he even had a picture of the Eber Ward on the serving platter he showed us. And the Eber Ward at the Straits, of course, is a a stern propeller. So Eberward apparently has been around in different different formats on different boats. But, uh, you know, this guy, I'm not going to give his name. Uh, we're tiny holes away. But he just finds a ton. He, this guy knows where they used to strip out the boats before scrapping them out. And, you know, so it's just piles and piles of furniture and serving ware and plumbing and just everything you can imagine from the insides of a ship down there, bathtubs and porcelain and everything, you you know, just it's a big, huge debris pile down there. Uh, also, if you are, go ahead, Mac. Sorry, I was going to say, and that's why we like rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, see the one, one of the docents at the uh, Dawson Center in Detroit told me that the reason why the law was put in about not diving Detroit River stemmed from. Uh, a lawsuit back in the mid-80s when a gentleman decided he was going to go out swimming in an extremely contaminated portion of it and ended up having a great deal of uh, problems with parasites shortly after. I guess he sued the uh, city of Detroit, and Detroit just, just decided just to make diving or swimming the river off limits unless you had a 
complete full face mask and dry suit like Mac is talking about. Um, now, I don't know how factual that is, but that's just what I was told. Um, if you do go to Detroit, the, the, the Dawson Center on Bell Isle, which is pretty close to where a lot of this, this, this uh, excavation is going on they're talking about, has a great deal of artifacts pulled from the Detroit River. This they talk about in that article about a uh, an old steamship, the city of Detroit, pulling on the anchor of that. Well, one of the anchors from the Edmund Fitzgerald is on display at the Dawson Center. A uh, little known factoid: I think it was 1972. The Fitzgerald lost an anchor in the Detroit River three years before it went down. Anchor was likely replaced, so it wasn't. This was not taken out the wreck by any means. This is just something lost in the river. It was known that it was out there, and with the Fitzgerald becoming so popular and the lore surrounding it, um, a group put the time and the investigation into locating that anchor, and it's currently on display right there at, at the Dawson Center. So, yeah, you can touch a piece of the Fitzgerald at the Dawson Center should you choose. It's on display right outside, and there's no sign saying do not touch. Like I said, I love the river. They also have a number of anchor of uh, excuse me, of cannons on display at the Dawson Center. They um, haven't put a lot of effort into identifying the ones out front. I've looked at them a little bit, and they do have um, like there's like four large cannons on display out front, and a couple of them are French, a couple of them are British. And you know they're right; these these things were dumped out there repeatedly. They're I don't know if the cannons in front of uh, the Dawson Center are the cannons from this article or not, but they certainly are, you know, that vintage we're talking about. So, Interesting place to go if you've got the time, inclination, and the experience. Road trip. Yeah. Well, the next thing, since we have been talking shipwrecks here in the Detroit River, uh, southern, southern Sweden may have its own Vasa as historic shipwreck is identified. It appears that uh, marine archaeologists there have identified a shipwreck in the south of Sweden as an historic warship the same size as the one displayed in Stockholm's world-famous Vasa Museum. And if you don't know what that is, take a look at it. Look for Vasa Museum, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. They, they talked about uh, a little over a million and a half people have visited the Stockholm's Vasa. Uh, it's a well-preserved wreckage of the ill-fated ship which sank on its maiden voyage in 1628, and it was salvaged in 1960. And the article has an excellent, excellent picture of it. They say the um, the new wreckage is from a similar time period, lying on the bottom in the seabed there in southern Sweden. It's about the same size as the Vasa, 45 meters long, and between 68 and 70 cannons. And the Vasa had 64. The first ship was built and launched in 1682 and participated in uh, King Carl's the what 12th assault against Denmark in 1700. So when you're talking about shipwrecks there, you've got a lot more history than we do local. You're talking hundreds and hundreds of years as opposed to 150. They talked about the, the ship, like the Vasa, was not particularly reliable at sea and ended up at its current location in 1713. Uh, but there's more information to suggest it previously ran aground before in the North Bay of Bothany in 1683. It was rescued and sailed again for another 20 years before it met its final fate. 
And let's see, it, it, they talked about, it's Hansen's theory that the ship may even have been drowned, is what they call it, sunk, deliberately in order to use its cannons to defend against Carl XII's disastrous campaign against Russia. It said, my early theory is the ship may have been sunk deliberately and used as sort of a car, uh, cannon barge while construction stopped during the king's catastrophic expedition. They hadn't built an adequate defense, so it may have solved that. It says, anyone hoping for a vessel in equally good condition as the Vasa would be disappointed, however. Uh, part of the ship appears to have been flattened by the construction of the stone pier, though it is thought that the lower sections may be better preserved. And the pictorial is ever pretty good, but it, it doesn't look like the Vasa by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, she is pretty much broken up from the parts that you can see and heavily encrusted with um, marine animals. It said, uh, further research is likely to be carried out on the wreck, which is historically significant, as it was the first ship to be built at this particular shipyard, where there is still a Navy base to this day. So their only hope of getting something really definitive out of it is if they excavate it from the sea bottom. Yeah, well, I'd be curious to, to see what they find when they start digging deeper in the sea bottom. Maybe they will find areas of it which are better preserved. I think that's what protected the Vasa was. A lot of it was buried in the mud. So, you know, that's why all the ornate woodwork and things survived on it. And I think the last shipwreck we've got now, we're talking 1700. The next item was in a, uh, I think it's called the Seeker. This is from February 1st, a 1,800-year-old shipwreck found almost completely intact on the Spanish coast. The uh, ancient vessel was found carrying thousands of jars of pugnant fish sauce, a popular Roman condiment. And uh, the picture they show is just a, a picture of the o open, open ocean. But they said the Roman shipwreck was discovered off the coast of Spain. They found the ship in 230 feet of water. It said most of the 1,000 to 2,000 ancient Roman jars are still in their original position from the time of the ship's sinking. The jars known as amphora have remained untouched for two millennia. And then he talks about that they, uh, what they are likely carrying was that fermented fish sauce. I would imagine if you opened that on the surface now, it would be a little bit ripe, to say the least. Yeah, but the fact that it still exists today, that's kind of cool to think about. I mean, uh, maybe, it was, maybe it was kept chilled down there. Maybe it was supposed to be ripe. Would you like to find out? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not guarantee you that I'm going to uh, no, smother it in tartar sauce. We'll find out. It would be quite interesting to open one, one jar of it in a ventilated room just to see how pugnant it really was. <laughs> yeah, how fast, how fast the room cleared. Or is that repugnant? Yeah. It, it said <laughs> no. the fact that the ship was found in National Park Waters was a key factor in its preservation. Uh, the islands foster hundreds of animal species, plant life, and was declared an archipelago maritime terrestrial national park in 1991. And it's considered one of the most well-conserved seabeds on the Spanish coast. It said uh, they were first notified of a potential shipwreck when fishermen, and fishermen are usually who knows where the wrecks are, they're just not going to be telling you because it's good fishing, uh, they began finding pieces of M4 in their nets. In April of 2016, they sent a robot down to probe the area 
which returned with images of amphora covering an area 45, uh, would make that 49 feet wide, which is pretty significant. Then it said in October, divers went down to do a better investigation, uh, made, you know, made difficult because it is so deep, and returned with over 2,000 images, and they're actually studying that now to see what are they going to be doing later. The ship didn't seem to be that long. They said the ship is approximately 20 meters in length, you know, a little over 67 feet. Um, originated in the 4th or 5th century BCE, believed the ship was trading the jars of, of garum between North Africa, Spain, France, and Rome. The discovery is the recent of 12 ships found within the waters of the archipelago we just talked about, and they're hoping to create a map of all the marine uh, archaeological assets before they suffer damage. I was looking at the comments afterward. It said, uh, I'm sure the extreme depth at that time especially helped safeguard it from looters. Most of the ancient shipwrecks that are easily accessible near the European coast were plundered long ago, especially with the advent of consumer accessible scuba technology in the last half of the 20th century. So some of the comments are interesting also. Yeah, sorry, Mac. I'm having a hard time keeping up. Um, my com- I was using a different computer tonight, which is not up to par, so I'm with you on my better machine now. Yeah. Well, I think the last item we were going to talk about is that diver that got lost, and I was trying to recall that one. Yeah, this was from a couple of days. I first saw it on Facebook. Um, Tyler McLeod, M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Alexander Stewart gave an update on the search for missing Sharkwater director Rob Stewart. It said, uh, Rob Stewart, the Toronto filmmaker and conservationist, is missing after a night dive off the Florida Keys while on a shoot for the follow-up to his award-winning documentary, Sharkwater. Stewart's friend and publicist and sister spoke to E.T. Canada's Rich Carabinini on Wednesday about the chain of events and the ongoing efforts to locate him. They said uh, they're making headway, but as it stands now, we haven't found them. Stewart and two fins were on a night dive in waters up to 70 meters, the deepest dive Stewart had ever completed. And it's near a shipwreck close to the Isamora when Stewart disappeared beneath the waves. Uh, McLeod said, uh, everything seemed normal, recounting the events following the dive. They were doing very deep dives, like they said, deeper than he'd gone before. Because in his eyes, it's beginning. it was getting harder and harder to find sharks, to get the sharks. He wants to show people new sharks that they've never seen before, and he was re- uh, using a brand-new rebreather system. He was last seen around 5.15 p.m. Tuesday evening near the dive boat, reportedly gave a thumbs-up uh, signal, said he's okay following the dive. When one of the three divers blacked out, Stewart's friend dove into the water to rescue the unconscious diver, when he surfaced with the diver, Stuart was gone. Uh, his comment was he was working with a new rebreather and going very deep. He might have been lightheaded. He might not have been fully aware. We're hoping that he inflated his BC, and that's keeping him above the surface. Said the search went on throughout the night from the sea, air, and underwater. Uh, they were testing the current to determine the search area. Uh, the Coast Guard was out helping. They had a plane and helicopter in the air, but thus far they have not located them. 
the key items they were hopeful for that he had been inflating in his BC is it said the water conditions were great. It was calm. Water was warm. He was doing a dry suit. He had a life jacket. In addition, well, I assume that meant with a BC. So they figured he had a long chance of surviving if he's on the surface. And that's all I've heard so far on that, unless somebody else has got something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're looking at he's been missing for three days now. I mean, if he's hasn't been found yet, he's probably. I mean, it, it, this is a recovery at this point. He's, they're not going to, you know, it's not a rescue. They're not going to find him alive at this point, unfortunately. And the way they were talking about that, it was a rebreather die for all of them. That has the potential to have contributed to the problem. Well, I don't know that a rebreather actually makes it any more dangerous than doing it on open circuit. I mean, um, as long as you're properly trained on it. I'm kind of concerned because it does say that he was new to this equipment, um, saying that he was new to rebreathers in general, just new to this particular one he was using. So, I mean, I I know that uh, divers who have traditionally used only open circuit, you know, Tanks, compressed, you know, compressed air, are kind of literary of rebreathers. But then there are many people who are diving deeper than anyone else, consistently using them successfully. So I think it's just a matter of: do you want to trust the new technology, or do you want to go with tried and true? So. Yeah, I was just looking at another article. Let's see, it says eight hours ago, and it just said friends in the Coast Guard were ramping up their search. Uh, for today, matter of fact. And it has just pictures of the Coast Guard out there. Everybody's looking on the surface. Uh, it didn't say how far they were offshore. Uh, they talked about it was um, near Alligator Reef off Lower Metcumbe Key. Not sure where that is, but the term Alligator Reef doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could just be a name to attract the tourists too, though. I mean, are we talking alligator reef because it's, I mean, I'm sure there aren't alligators there. It's just probably jagged and taking a few boats down or something. Or it's shaped like an alligator. Yeah. Well, I think those are the items we had listed for today. So, anybody been out there diving? I'm a little dry myself. How about, how about you, Mac? Have you been out? I am, I am dry because the weekends have been busy. Saturdays, I've been gone. And... Looks like, well, I'm good for another two Saturdays, and then we're going to be done for three Saturdays in a row. And it's hard to find somebody to zip my suit up in the middle of the week. <laughs> well, well, I I had been going to the shop and having Jim zip me, but he's in New Jersey. Larry, I can't dive with him. He's in Florida. So all my normal go with me or at least be sure sport, I don't have that right now. Well, the days are getting a little bit longer. Notice when the sunset's approaching 6 o'clock now. Um, you know, if we can get to get the water to cooperate, we've just kind of been in that ugly time right now when we don't, it's not, it hasn't been cold enough to make any ice, and yet it's, uh, you know, too cold to you know, have decent conditions in the river. There's an awful lot of shore ice still. Looking at the lakes, you know, a lot of them are kind of open out there, not safe ice, but, you know, just not enough that you can plan on diving underneath it unless it's a, a dedicated ice dive. And the river through Niles has been really fast. Uh, Mary Beth went out there and uh, gave me a report on that because I was contemplating going down to Merrimont. Uh, Ain't going to happen. That's definitely going to be a tethered dive because the currents are freaking fast. 
But I've been looking to do some diving up here in St. Joe. Uh, we've got some stretches that are like, I won't say deadheaded, but don't have the current. And uh, first time I can get me someone to zip my suit for me, uh, I'm going to be back in the water under the bridges. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, talk about something this weekend. You know, let's put, let's see what your time and my time, for free time, and maybe we can put something together here because I'd love to get back in the water. Uh, you know, it's oh, been. You, are you are you game for the river? Hey, I'll hey I'll do your zipper if you do mine. <laughs> I was thinking about um, we had scanned an area when Bob had that new slide scan his uh, last summer, and it's down by where they used to build um, mine layers or not mine layers but mine. Seekers out of wood. Yes, yes. And they also used to build PT boats. It's in that channel that uh, we spotted debris. It would be interesting to go down and see what that debris was. Well, it we, could be we, something as simple as material from the uh, pilings and the docks, which may have been there when they had the old sailboats. And uh, it, to me, it's going to be an interesting dive. Well, I wouldn't be opposed to taking a look at that. You know, I know when you and I went and scanned that late, you know, after Bob had gone through there, it really looked like just a, a pile of pilings or tree limbs on the bottom there. So, you know, uh, I'd be curious to see what else is in that area because, you know, that, that's been a, a heavily traversed area for a long, long, long time. Might not be a, might not be a bad area to go grubbing too, but. Well, I, I was think- thinking about we could park under the bridge, take a ladder, put it in. That way we've got a good entrance and exit, which is important mm-hmm. there. And uh, play by ear. See what the weather and see what the uh, current looks like and the visibility. Because in new areas like that, I would prefer a couple of feet of visibility. Yeah, and I'm thinking that was like, it was three poles down from where the satellite dish sits on there. So, yeah, I think we we, we got some decent surface marks so we can find it in the water pretty easy, I'm sure. Um, But, you know, I, 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 I will bet you lunch that it's a pile of pilings or tree limbs. I would probably suggest the same, but I always like around bridges because people toss the darndest things off of bridges. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember you were indicating that you knew there was something else in that in that area many, many years ago. Would you care to elaborate? Oh, that was rumored to have been the bottom part of a hull from a, a PT boat with the engine. And you, mm-hmm. you, they said you could go over it and you'd get the, the, the bare outline of a hull. With a bump. Uh-huh. Well, we well, did not see that. It is possible that uh, that might be there, and that's what's what the, what the branches are following on. Now, I do know that on the charts, just upstream from the bridge, it actually shows a wreck in the water. And I'm not sure if I was with you or might have been with Rob, but uh, came back in from doing a dive on the big water. I think I might have been with you. I'm not sure. But I, and we scanned that area that's just up from the bridge. And uh, there is a bunch of wood in the water. It's really hard to tell if there's a derelict or a, or if it's just an old pile, bunch of pilings or something there. But yeah, I, uh, I don't remember scanning with you, but you know where the Clementines is? Clementines. One Clementines I know is in South Haven. The, the, the ones here. Or you know where where we've been talking about where the pilings could be just you think uh, part of the docking. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. If you continue to go up where all the boats are, uh-huh. if you go all the way where it reaches the river, just before you get there is where the old railroad track used to be. Off okay. to the right, 
where the chart says it's two foot of water, there's three wrecks there. Okay. First guy in the water, stepped into the water there, stepped on something, put down and brought up the ship's wheel. <laughs> All right. All right. The top wreck is a tugboat that was stripped from the top. On the forward end, you'll find a donkey engine. The propeller <coughs> is now gone. Under it, and that's where I dug a hole to get, I mean, someone dug a hole to get that propeller off. There's another shell, and there was another propeller there. How deep? Would you believe 15 feet? (laughs) Uh, Um, Mac, if if this is open water, we got to dive, buddy. Yeah. And the the third wreck was bone, but and I'm willing to bet had I dug it out, I would have found a third prop. There's a shaft that's in the middle of the river going under the water that I'd love to dig out, but you can only dive at this time of year. What's 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 the access like up there? Can we can we shore dive all this? We're going to get in a boat. We used to could, and now we can't because we used to drive right to it. You step right into water, and you're ten feet from the wreck. All right. What, what's funny though is we were more interested in that, but there is a little cutout when we first started diving it, and it's been cleaned out. The first thing you ran into was a Harley Davidson motorcycle frame, and a All Model right. T. Those have since been removed. Well, look, um, you've got a kayak. I got a kayak. We can kayak our gear up to it, and put our put our rigs on in the shallows and go out. How's that sound? True. That's what I normally do. All right. That's two people. Let's talk about this offline. I know the people out there don't care what we're going to do Saturday, but uh, <laughs> All right. may have something to report next Thursday. Yeah, yeah, we we we've got to get wet, man. I'm I'm starting to like, like crack and blister here, man. I got to get in the water. Yeah. Well, Darren, are but, you yeah. still there? I mean, we figured you'd jump in and say, "Okay, you guys, shut up a little bit." <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm here. Are are you ready? Are, are we ready to to end it? <laughs> well, I don't know, Darren. Are you have you got a joke for us tonight? I do have a joke. Well, let's yeah. hear it. Okay. Here we go. Well, hey, hey, what? hey, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, we could, we've only got about uh, an hour's worth of recording right now. Uh-huh. Um, Mac hasn't done his uh, safety tip. Okay. And I, have, I haven't I have done my uh, wreck of the week. Yeah, I'll go for it. So Mac, okay. do you have a safety tip? I'll do mine first. Yes, go, please. Okay. Uh, my safety tip for the week, and again, most of this is common sense, stuff you already know. And so I'm just going to refresh it for you. Listen here, it's called safety diving. Always have a backup plan. And number one is emergency planning. Scuba diving is a fantastic sport. You get total immersion in your sport, no pun intended, of course. And you leave everybody, you know, the world and the troubles you had on the surface when you're down there. You know, you get that serenity and that zen-like state when you're diving. But you still got to take steps to ensure your safety. And one of these is to make sure you have a backup plan in case something goes wrong. Shouldn't be a cause for over-anxiety and stress, but rather is seen as a dose of healthy, timely paranoia. So key items is always bring spares of everything critical. And when I go on a trip, this is doubly important. I mean, if I miss something here, I can always go home and get it, you know, half-hour drive. You're up in Sheboygan or on a boat, it's like, oops, so, small collection of key items such as spare O-rings in varying sizes, fin strap, mast strap, can you say save a dive kit? Everybody knows what those are. Dive computer batteries, 
few wire strips for attaching gear, tube of marine goop, which is my estimation better than some of that neoprene glue we have, and some duct tape. With glue and duct tape, you can do amazing things. Okay, put them in a small box, goes a long way towards making an emergency repair kit if something goes wrong. And again, you know, it means the difference between calling a dive because you lost a friend or a fin strap. On your dive computer, and some of this has changed a lot of times now they're saying, when you do a dive computer, especially if you're doing deep diving, they really recommend you have two. So if you had one fail on the dive, if you had two, you've got a real good backup that you could possibly continue your dive, but at least you could do a safe descent knowing you've got good documentation for what you did for the whole dive. So some play, you know, sometimes they're recommending you might really want to consider taking a secondary computer, especially for deep dives. Uh, other item they talked about, though, when they were talking about computers, it says dive computers are oftentimes an integral part of a lot of recreational scuba equipment. A lot of divers will seldom dive without one, but like any piece of equipment, they can fail. What do you do if it fails in the middle of a dive? And it points out, depending on where you're at, the type of dive, it could be one of those little factors to panic, and you really don't want to do that. So it said, if a computer malfunctions, you're diving a no decompression limit, and you know you're well within your decompression limit, obviously you're going to come up, you're going to abort. It said, even though your buddy may have be in a dive with you, he has a dive computer, you're diving the same dive with him, there's no real sure that his profile is the same as yours. So basically you want to go ahead, signal him, and go up together, but then make sure you do your safety stops. It said also that if you are doing a dive, first dive of the day, within your no decompression limits, you should definitely start checking the charts to find out what your surface interval would be for your maximum pressure group. So basically take your charts with you also. It says, make sure you know the maximum time and depth of your dive. What do you plan to do? And that means for you and your buddies, and if the guy's on the boat watching you guys, does he know when you're going to come back? And if you don't, what should he be doing? That's some kind of plan that you ought to be thinking about and have written down. They talked about some divers have allowed dive computers to make them lazy on both their time, their decompression limits. They just follow it blindly, and they don't really have any kind of backup for it. We've talked about this before is managing your air. And like they said, it's not because you're farting in your wetsuits, what they're talking about. It talk, makes, make sure you know you have a plan for the air that you're breathing and for your air consumption. Have you really measured your, what they call your SAC or surface air consumption? Because they said, knowing your dive plan according to your depth and your time, because then you'll know how much air you'll need and how much you should be bringing back with you. They talk about the difference between shallow dives and deep dives, and current dives. So you really need to take precautions to allow yourself extra margins that most of us don't do when we're doing those kind of dives. They said you can plan on coming up in a current and lose that line, then all your planning just went askew. So the more air you got, obviously, the better you're going to be. So they're talking about what is your backup plan? What do you do if you have a simple failure, which can be nothing more than a an annoyance, or even an, an aborted dive. But you want to prevent that being one of the safety links in that chain that says getting broken that causes you to have a big accident. 
Yeah, because most of us are trained to, to deal with one piece of equipment failing. You know, we, we have redundancy. We have backup plans. It's when, you know, you have that one fail, and you're dealing with that, you think you're good, and then another one fails, and then you're kind of sunk. So, you know, only you know, I mean, t- technically, if you have a failure, you should abort. I mean, but, of course, some people are, some people aren't going to do that, but that's what you should do. Yeah, I mean, just a simple one is if you did have your computer go bad and you're deep and then you start to have a free flow and you didn't start aborting when you should have, now you're going to double trouble. Yeah. Well, you know, most of our listeners are, you know, recreational divers and recreational diving is, is, is designed to, to stay out of decompression. So we shouldn't have to worry about decompression. We, we should be able to, even if computer fails, you know, you look at, at at your pressure gauge, you have plenty of air, you know, what you should have, you know, already been ascending before you got to that point. But if your computer fails, you just begin your gradual ascent, do your three-minute safety stop, and you should and you should be good to go because you shouldn't be in, in decompression if you are a recreational diver. You know, if you are in decompression, then, you know, you've gone beyond what recreational diving teaches, and hopefully you, you have more redundancy, and you've damn well better be familiar with the charts and, and know how to get yourself out of it. And, and even on the shallow water that I do a lot of, and when shallow, we're talking 20 feet or less. When you get down to that last 500 pounds and you are still got to cross the river to get back to shore and you say, well, I want to do one more bottle or look for one more, that's when you're going to get yourself in trouble because as soon as you do that and you get hung up on a sunken tree limb or something, all your planning just went right out the window. And that's why when we're doing or I'm doing river diving that I'm not familiar with the area and there's entanglement, which there always is after the, the spring thaw, it's never a bad idea to have that bailout because you've got that extra little protection because you can always get rid of the gear, you know, which normally gets rid of your snag point. And having that bailout gives you that extra little time part that if you got time, you can solve your issues. And, and if you're diving in the river, you, you don't necessarily need to have that great big 30 cubic foot bailout. You know, I mean, you're when we dive the river, at least, at least our river. Now, I'm not talking on Detroit River where you're going 60 feet deep. You know, our river here where we're going, you know, 10, 12 feet deep. Uh, you know, even just a little 13 cubic foot bailout will give you quite a bit of air down there. Absolutely. So think ahead and, and think of that what if. It probably won't happen. But if it does, that extra little being paranoid save your life. Well, and also the, the bailout gives you a, quite a bit of peace of mind. I mean, uh, you, you know that you have a completely separate system. If that whole tank system on your back goes bad for some reason, you've got something else to fall back on. Now, of course, at that point, your your uh, your dive is done. You know, in fact, a friend of mine, Dave Toneman, was telling me that you know there's no point in even having a, a gauge on your bailout because once you're using it. Your dive is done. You're not going to be spacing that out to finish off your dive. So that's it. And the key item, though, is if you have not used your bailout for a while, it's strong. No, not strongly. If you're not checking your pressure before you start and then validating it still works, meaning your regulator, you're going to get a, a nasty surprise when you need to use that one time. And I think Jason, I know the nasty surprise you're referring to. Yeah, yeah me. Except I didn't need it, but I was testing my rig out, and it's like, wait a minute, this sucker's not working. Uh-huh. And it's like, well, what if I'd have needed it on the bottom as opposed to being on the hang line just checking it out first? Yep, it's one of those exactly. 
worked all my life. It's never failed before. It was my cyclone, my best regulator, because it always goes on my survival gear. That son of a gun did not work. I mean, I, I could barely breathe, but uh, if you'd have been at depth, would not have given me any capacity whatsoever. So uh-huh. check it out before you go down, especially if you are going past that five-foot limit. Uh-huh. Well, and then there was a little drill that, that Jim showed me a while back when, you know, when, when you are going deep, um, check out all your regulators when you're going deep. You know, believe it or not, uh, an awful lot of your uh, your octosets uh, are very cheap, chintzy regulator. You know, the, 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 when, you, when you buy them, then you end up spending the good money on the regular you use all the time, and the octo is kind of just there for eye candy, and often is very poor quality. You know, as Max says, you, you want your best regulator as your backup. So, you know, when you do a deeper dive, swap regulators. Try them out. Make sure they're all going to work at the depth you're at. And if they, if they don't, then, well, maybe you shouldn't be at that depth with that set. The other item with that, oftentimes I have taken my octopus off and I go single regulator with a bailout, single regulator assembly. Reason being is if I'm grubbing, many times that octo got dragged through the mud and would not be very enticing to try to use. The oh, other yeah, part I've noticed is I get more problems. I've had very few ice diving regulator issues. I've had more of mine in the river in cold water, and it's my octo that starts to burp. And once it burps, it's gone, mm-hmm. and the dive is over. So two systems, two regulators, two tanks, that's my preference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know a, a, a well-known tech diver friend of mine who – won't even use an octo. He refuses to have an octo on, on his rig, but he always has a bailout. If his buddy's in trouble, he hands him the bailout. So rather than have his buddy have a, a, a panic diver suck down all of his air too, you know, and then both of them go. So you know, there's there's different schools of thought on that. But whether you're using a bailout, whether you're using an octo, uh, or both, have some kind of redundancy built built into your plan. Um, and, and a bailout is not a bad way to go. I, I've had it. A number of dives, which, uh, you know, I don't say number, I've had three dives where uh, I had to fall back on my bailout. And you know, as a result, I was able to finish the dive on my own equipment and wasn't all a lot of stress and drama about it. You know, yeah, the dive was done. I was on the bailout. I was out of there. But uh, it wasn't even a close call. It was just, hey, a change in gear. So, And, and along that same item as, uh, you know, preventive, Quite often when we're diving wrecks, maybe not the Havana at 45 or 50 feet, but like Max Wreck, 70-some-odd feet, we quite often will hang a bottle regulator at your uh, stage depth. So if coming up, if you run out, you've got air, and we quite often have one by the anchor. So if you Uh can make it back to the anchor line, there's a tank and regulator right there. Uh Never bad to have air. There's no such thing as too much air. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. So what have you got today for shipwreck stuff? Well, um, you know, I'd like to do a little feature here about the uh, featured wreck of the week. And, uh, you know, some people like them deep, some people like them shallow. But I'm going to talk about a wreck which is relatively shallow, which you can see pretty much everything you see on a deep wreck. This wreck would be the Barnum up at the Straits. Uh, the William H. Barnum is something which I think most of us most most of the mud club has been at one time or another, 
Uh, it's actually a very popular record with the Straits. I know when I've been up there, I've seen the local scuba shop up there uh, bring out their, their their students as one of their first wreck dives. Um, what's what's the name of that that dive shop there in Sheboygan, there, Mac? I'm I'm having a mental moment, but I'll think of it in a second. So is that, keep is that going Northern, out. Northern, I think it's Northern Michigan Dive Center, isn't isn't that the one? Yeah, it's right there in Sheboygan. A great place. They got good nitrox fills, and they have a fantastic dive boat. Yeah, I think that's that's Northern Michigan Dive Center. I want to say um, they uh, you know good crew up there. Uh, Keith and Chuck run a really good shop up there. They've always taken good care of us. And I don't mind plugging those folks at all because they deserve it and more. That that is a excellent dive shop there. Um, not that we don't have good dive shops around here, but I really enjoy Northern Michigan Dive Shop. But anyway, back to the barn. Um, I posted a few links in the chat room. I posted a page from uh, Great Lakes Underwater, also a page from the michiganpreserves.org. Uh, on there, you'll, those pages, you'll find information about the Barnum. GreatLakesUnderwater.com backslash Barnum. Uh, I believe this is Jan Underhill's page, if I'm not, I'm not mistaken. Uh, the Barnum foundered about five miles east of Mackinac Point on April, for, April 3rd, 1894. The ship was one of a large fleet of boats to leave Chicago on the first trip of the 1894 shipping season. James M. Jones of Detroit built the 218-foot bulk carrier 1873. By the spring of 1894, the, the ship's condition was poor enough to have the underwriters insure for only one more run around the lake where it was to be refitted in Port Huron. The old hull opened a seam while running through the heavy weather in the straits. Sounding a distress call on the steam whistle brought aid from the tug Crusader. All members of the crew were removed from the ship before the ship sank in 70 feet of water. An uh, early salvage diver, Fred Ryers, Excuse me, I'm scaling. Yeah, early salvage diver Fred Reyes first visited Barnum one day after it sank. It was never salvaged. Norm McCready rediscovered the wreck in 1963. Many great artifacts were removed during the during the freewheeling collecting of the 60s and 70s. The stern section of the wreck was destroyed in the 60s when divers used explosives to re remove the rudder, which was placed on display in St. Nicholas Waterfront Park. Today, the main hull is intact forward of the stern, but the weight of zebra mussels forming forming all over the hull, may pull the wreck apart further. The, de the decks have collapsed into the hull, leaving the boilers and single-cylinder steam engine open to explore. Forward, the windlass can still be found on the upper deck. One can swim into the forward, at forward section below the deck to an empty anchor locker. Now, this is a magnificent wreck dive. Uh, only 60 feet of water. And you have a very much intact shipwreck here. Not completely intact. The stern section is kind of kind of opened up on it there. Um, but being opened up, you can examine the engine and the machinery without having to do any kind of a penetration there. Um, there is some very limited penetration potential here. Uh, some, some of the boat is enough intact to do that. Uh, you know, whether you want to do that it depends upon your, your abilities there, of course. Um, this boat was actually a combination sailing and uh, sailing and steam vessel. So you do have masts, you do have steam engine, you do have propeller and rudder. I haven't seen the propeller and rudder. I think they may be, the rudder they said is gone. I think the propeller might be buried in the uh, wreckage around the stern. 
The bow was very impressive on this boat, though. This was a very deep hulled boat. Uh, one of my favorite shots is to, uh, you know, stand, you know, put your fin tips on the bottom of the lake right in front of the bow and look up at that hull above you. And you just don't see that in 60 feet of water. Uh, it's also in a very sheltered area. This is one of those dives you do when the water's rough and it's you're getting blown off the wrecks further offshore. Um, I want to say this is only about a mile and a half, no more than two miles offshore, and it's kind of in between Boy Blanc Island and uh, the mainland, so it doesn't get a lot of current, a lot of wind built up there, and visibility tends to be pretty good. You know, I think I've got a, a half dozen dives on it, and I've never had less than 20 foot, and I think I've had close to 60 foot visibility on it last year. Um, very cool wreck, very sheltered wreck. That's probably why it's so intact to this day is because it doesn't just, just get all the storm surge where it is. Um, this is a great wreck to dive should you get the chance. I know I have that, to add something uh, to you that. I have ahead. an advantage you don't have. I dove that in 1972, one of my first ones up there. All right. And if you think it looks good now, you should have seen it in 72. How was the visit in 72? We had, I remember on that wreck, first time I dove it was the first time I had ever been there and suddenly got scared because everything turned black. And we had a school of fish that come through us. And I'm sure they do that in salt water all the time, but it was my first time I've ever been in the middle of a school of fish was on that wreck. Okay. But it was a lot more intact than it is now. It's like the other two that you didn't mention, which are like that one, is the clay and the fault clay. And they were okay. all in excellent, I mean, all penetrated wrecks, all had good chain lockers. Uh, back then, I wish I'd have had my camera because you'd have had some really, really pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's still quite imposing. You know, it, as as the article states here, the uh, stern area is pretty broken up on it there. It, it is splitting open at the stern. Um, but, the, hey, that's just the stern, and that does provide the ability to, you know, look a lot at the the inside of the ship's construction. Um, you get to see the machinery and the boilers very thoroughly, as I recall. I know this, the uh, there's two moorings on it, and the stern one is attached to the boil, to the uh, the piston on the back. Um, you know, you get to see a lot of the boat here in a shallow dive, which you just don't usually see, you know, an intact bow section in 60 feet of water. That's very rare. So. That dive shop up there is the Northern Michigan Scuba Diving Center. Uh, we have that in our newsletter, but it's I Dive Michigan, and that's out of Sheboygan, Michigan. Fabulous shop. Uh, good tours. You can't go wrong if you frequent them and uh, go diving with them. And those guys pump out a lot of students, too. I mean, whenever I've gone up there, they've always got a, got a class in session. Our, uh, they, they also do uh, snorkeling tours. There is a number, there are, no, was it but four or five different wrecks out there in uh, Duncan Bay area, and they take groups out there to go snorkeling. It's actually a lot of fun to snorkel the wrecks in, in Duncan Bay. The state park offers kayaks that you, you can rent to go see them. The uh, the dive shop you know, will rent you the equipment, sell you the equipment, whatever you want to do. They have tours available. Get a hold of Keith and Chuck. Good people, good shop. A great endorsement because it's a great place. 
And a couple Steve of those wrecks is the Genesee Chief is one of them. The Jenny Lynn is a tugboat that's recently sunk, a couple of years. Great place to go, especially if you're a fledgling diver. Those are protected areas pretty much when I say protected by the environment. Uh, we can dive there a lot of times when the weather is bad offshore. We can go into the big bay, and there's even a grubbing wreck that you can play with. Really, really nice place to bargain. Yeah, the uh, Genesee Chief and the Leviathan are a couple of shipwrecks. Um, only in, what, about 10, 12 feet of water there? Um, yeah. We've had people take their kayaks. I mean, a great place for kayaking. Take pictures of us, and you'd swear they're doing a glass-bottom boat when they're taking pictures of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the you know the, the state park does rent kayaks. So, and the state park is, you know, Sheboygan State Park is on the south shore of Duncan Bay. And the staff will rent you a, you know, a kayak paddle and life jacket for about 20 bucks. And you can go out there and paddle and see. And some, somebody buoys these things. There, are, there usually is a milk jug on the uh, Genesee Chief and the Leviathan. Um, the Jenny Lynn impact tug that Mac mentioned is on the far side of the bay. It's a pretty good haul to kayak it, but but you can. Um, that's about I want to say about twenty five feet deep there, plus or minus. Yep. Uh, yep. And if you go to the state park, though, you can take it right off. It's directly off the state park, so you do have yep. access without going the way we do from the from the harbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you have like a couple more. You have uh, what they call the Islander, which was an old sailboat that's on the uh, northern shore of Duncan Bay. Uh, and right next to it is the Duncan Bay Mystery Wreck. So we've just mentioned five wrecks, which you can snorkel. You can dive if you like them, too. The uh, the Jenny Lynn tugboat is well worth the dive. I, I, I both dove it. I free dove it. I snorkeled it. Um, you're looking at, a, I believe, a 40-foot-long tugboat that went down in 2004. So it's very intact. Still has the glass in the windows. Still has the lift bags attached to it when they tried to pick it up unsuccessfully. Um Bring 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 your rod and reel. That's a good place to uh, to fish while you're diving. It is just chock full of crappies and bluegills and smallmouth. And the although watch your fingers because the local fishermen know it. And it's also chock full of hooks too. So <laughs> careful of them. And we're turning back over to you, Darren. Okay. All right. A couple of good wrecks. Also, like to thank our Dive Nitrox Patron supporter Vanessa Homiak. Thank you once again for donating and if you want to know how you can donate go to www.scubaobsessed.com click on the patreon link and make a donation also like to thank wrvo radio for putting us on the air another year uh reno viola outdoors network if you like hunting fishing the great outdoors they have something 24 7 that you're certainly going to want to listen to and it is that time of the show are you guys ready ever ready gonna be. <laughs> okay i lost my timepiece at a party once I saw a guy stepping on it while sexually harassing a girl. I walked up to the dude, punched him straight in the nose. No one does that to a girl. Not on my watch. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> All right, Darren. <laughs> I have to think. I, uh, I think your, your jokes are improving, Darren. <laughs> definitely, it's an improvement, well, yeah. I can't take... Yeah, I, I guess that's... But that, that's another one from Rod. He's... He's been pretty good at keeping us stocked, so thanks once again, Rob. <laughs> no, that's, that's actually, Rob's kind of outdone him, done himself. Yeah. Eric says watch it, bud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. 
and have a good time doing it. completed. Well, thank you much. My voice would never have made it. In fact, I'm barely able to talk as it is.